Hello, welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. This is part four and the final part with Ramamped Ruminations book club for No Man Knows My History. We are going over chapters 22 through 27 and then we go over the epilogue. So this is that episode. I hope you guys enjoy it and stay tuned for talking about Hugh Nibley's The Church Historian's response to this book. I hope you guys enjoy this. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's Exmo Book Club episode is called No Man Knows My History, Part 4. Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. I have a very special guest today. It's a continuation of a series that we've been doing over the course of about six months at this point. I've got Julia from Analyzing Mormonism, and we're going to cover the fourth part of the book, No Man Knows My History. In this section, we're covering chapters 22 through 27, and then the epilogue of the book. So if you want to go back and listen, Check out the show notes. We've got uh, parts one, two, and three, links to those there. So if this is the first one you're listening to, you're going to jump in right at the end of Joseph Smith's life. Although this is a very captivating section, there were some really cool stuff that we covered in those previous episodes. So please go back and listen to those ones if you haven't. Without further ado, Julia, welcome to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Welcome back to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Thank you. Yeah, you said six months. That's that's kind of a while. <laughs> it has been a while, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think our first episode, I don't know if we published it then, but I think we met for the first time in like April. Maybe it was May or June. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's been a while. Thank you again for giving me your time and and, uh, being willing to come in and chat on this subject. I'm sad for it to be over. Yes, I know. I am too. I am too. We'll have to pick another book to cover together. Yeah, that'd be fun. (laughs) This section um, covers basically the last few years of his life, and this picks up right at the end of the Nauvoo, Nauvoo period, kind of leading into the death of Joseph Smith. We can jump right into this with chapter 22. This one was called The Bennett Explosion. For me, one of the highlights was with Nancy Rigdon and the happiness letter. Joseph writes a letter seducing her. And the church often quotes from this letter, but they don't like people to know the origin of the letter, <laughs> which is interesting and funny to me. Yeah, I just did an episode a couple, like a month ago, about the happiness letter. Not focusing on the polygamy, but on the theology around his logic to say that it was okay. And just how that frames right and wrong, it makes them meaningless. Right. Yeah, take polygamy out of the happiness letter, and it's still terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Regardless of of the context and, and the content, he's basically saying that right and wrong have no meaning. Right, exactly. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and this is on page 309, this was like right off the bat, Bennett had been accused of seducing innocent women, all of these things surrounding polygamy. Um, and this is the, uh, the very bottom of page 309. It says, Joseph said that when he confronted Bennett with the evidence and also with letters showing him to be a wife deserter, Bennett in despair took poison, not enough to kill himself, 
though he was physician enough to be able to measure the correct dose, but enough to convince everyone that he was repentant, that his repentance was sincere. <laughs> I thought that was just a fascinating way to, to explain his character, this John C. Bennett person. The lengths he was willing to go to make himself look like a repentant person was he, would, he poisoned himself so that the community saw that he was repentant. Do I wonder why, I don't think she says, but I, why did Joseph pick certain men to be in his polygamous circle and not others? Was Bennett too public? From the way I understood their relationship, Bennett sidled himself up to Joseph and apparently was okay with a lot of the nefarious things that Joseph Smith was doing. And there was a really cool, on the very next page, um, 310, this is how Brody describes kind of a difference between Joseph Smith and Bennett. And John C. Bennett, uh, she said, unlike Joseph, he had never been troubled by the necessity of rationalizing his own impulses or squaring himself off with God. The way I viewed him, at least from how Brody portrayed him, was that he took the opportunity. He saw that this community was being completely controlled by Joseph Smith and he took advantage of it. At least that's the impression that I get from reading this story. Okay. Whether that's what happened, I, I don't know. And that's really interesting. Um, also, they talk a little bit about, so I heard even while I was in the church about these Nauvoo abortions, and they talk about it, he says that as he was um, trying to seduce women, he would offer them abortions if they became pregnant. And then she talks about this in later chapters, but that whole idea is just, just boggling to me that that happened at all or that that could even have happened. Yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of those things that we, couldn't, we can't really say did or didn't. Right. One way or the other. Right. I like this phrase where um, it says, Joseph clung to the hope that Bennett would be less dangerous in the church than out. So he's trying to keep his enemies close. But then later it says it was better to cut him off. And so we just like kicked him out of the church. There's on page 315. um, He's Brody's talking about these different classes of men and women. And she's talking about the Danites and she's talking about the destroying angels. And then she talks about these groups of classes that the women were divided into. She calls, she says the Cyprian sisters or the Cyprian saints, and then the chamber, the chambered sisters of charity. And then the last one is the cloistered sisters or saints of the black veil, or sorry, cloistered saints or saints of the black veil. So like there's three categories of women. And I just never heard of that before. And like, I've heard, yeah, like I've heard stories of the temple ceremony being to hide polygamy. And I've never looked into that specifically, that specific claim, but this just was so interesting to me. Yeah, that was something that I, I I have like a page of things that I kind of want to dig into deeper later. And that was one of them. Right, right. This is one of those things like uh, research more later. <laughs> yeah, because there's I just don't know very much about what this whole thing, like what the purpose of these different classifications was or what they were trying to. Right, right. Yeah, what they were trying to accomplish with it. John C. Bennett gets kicked out of the church and he makes himself an unreliable witness because he makes so many different claims about the church so that ranging from wild accusations to mundane things it makes any accusation that he makes almost worthless because he's making so many different different accusations he's going to different newspapers around um i think it was the sangamo journal in springfield anyway so he's like writing all these sensational things about how bad polygamy was and all these other things going on in the church. But he he almost said too much. So that now historians looking back, they don't really know what to trust and what not to trust from what he said. John C. Bennett wrote an expose on Joseph Smith. And I've been researching anti-Mormon literature to see if anyone talks about the first vision. 
and he doesn't say anything about it. But it's interesting, the first dozen pages or more, he's quoting people, he's giving affidavits and claims that say he's a good, upstanding person. So like, it took him so many pages to just kind of give himself credibility before he even went into the expose of Joseph. <laughs> it reminds me of the the Shakespeare line, the the lady doth protest too much, methinks. <laughs> yeah. It's like, he's, he's going so out of his way to say, I'm an honest person, trust me. <laughs> then he goes into what he's trying to tell him. Right, right. I love how Brody finished off this chapter. She says, The denials of polygamy uttered by the Mormon leaders between 1835 and 1852, when it was finally admitted, are a remarkable series of evasions and circumlocutions involving sorts of verbal gymnastics. When the brethren attacked spiritual wifeism or polygamy, it was with the mental reservation that the patriarchal order of marriage or celestial order of plurality of wives was immeasurably different. So it's it's just interesting because, you know, she's re- referring to the fact that this practice was denied for years and years. She's maybe making the, f- the first reference to mental gymnastics here. She calls it verbal gymnastics, but how these leaders had to have made this distinction in their mind of between polygamy and the celestial order of marriage. I know there's the groups of members of the church today that still say that because Joseph didn't have any records of polygamy, he didn't live it. And it was a fabrication of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. But like if if that were true and there was any evidence to that, I'm sure the church would have picked up on that and still claimed that he was monogamous. Apologists would definitely be jumping on, on any sort of evidence that would lean that direction. Right, right. It's one of those things where if something does come out and it and it shows that that was the case, that's fine. It's just there is there's no evidence to indicate that right now. Right. Should we move on to the next one to chapter twenty three? Yeah. This one is called "Into Hiding" and it's kind of a the repercussions of the whole Governor Boggs event and Porter Rockwell getting arrested. There's a lot of different things going on here. It's so fascinating, at least in this last section that we were reading. You have an, an example of Joseph Smith, like so deftly avoiding really harsh punishments to then in the end of the story where he's just, he just makes a very big blunder that leads to his ultimate death. And so I think that this, this series of events is an interesting juxtaposition to the later ones. So after Governor Boggs's death, there was a warrant out for the arrest of both Joseph Smith and Porter Rockwell. And it's interesting. So they sent, um, and this is on page t- uh, 324. This is, this is sheriffs from Missouri coming across state lines into Nauvoo to try and arrest and extradite Joseph Smith. This is on page 324 of No Man Knows My History. And then her source for this is um, WASP, which is a, a newspaper, I believe, from August 13th, 1842. It says, when the sheriffs arrived in Nauvoo on August 8th, 1842, Armed with the writ and a warrant from Governor Carlin, both Joseph and Porter Rockwell submitted to arrest, but were released under a writ of habeas corpus issued by the Nauvoo Municipal Court. The city council then passed an ordinance giving the Nauvoo Court power to inquire into the validity and legality of every writ or process served upon a Nauvoo citizen, and the right to dismiss it if the writ or process was found to have been issued either through private peak, malicious intent, or religious persecution, falsehood, or misrepresentation. This was, this was fascinating. I think it, it hinted at the fact that Joseph Smith was trying to take over 
both legal authority of his people and spiritual authority. They're writing laws in Nauvoo that supersede the laws of the land, saying if someone comes to arrest us, we get to determine if the laws of the land apply to us or not. Well, and even later, he goes on to change even more laws, right? And that was that was part of the problem kind of in the background that led to his ultimate death. I mean, there were a lot of things going on, but yeah, it was them basically trying to establish a theocracy with him as the king. During his hiding, she says on the next page that for four months, the prophet lived an uncertain, nerve-shattering existence, and he hid in secret bricked-in vaults under the cellar steps of his own house. He stayed in the farm, the farm of a friend, and he traveled by skiff up and down the river at night. But then you learn later that when he was at his friend's house on his farm, he persuaded this man's wife to become his polygamous wife. So like, I just, he's running from the law and he's still getting more wives. Got to catch them all if it were Pokemon. (laughs) Sorry, I'll probably cut that. (laughs) Oh, it's really funny. It should be a meme. (laughs) Yeah, so in this one, there was also an interesting, this is a couple pages later, this 328, he was submitting himself for arrest in Springfield. And on their way to Springfield, they passed this small village called Paris. And everywhere they go, they're getting denied passage. You know, the, the innkeepers like, hey, you know, we're not going to let you stay. Nobody in the village is, is being welcoming at all to the Mormons as they're coming through. And so Joseph Smith has this interesting line. And the reason I think it's fascinating is because the depictions that I've always seen of him don't include this side of early Mormonism. And I'll read, this is page 328. The landlord replied sullenly, we have heard the Mormons are very bad people and the inhabitants of Paris have combined not to have anything to do with them. We will stay, the prophet repeated in a tone that made the man turn pale. But no thanks to you. I have men enough to take the town. And if we must freeze, we will freeze by the burning of these houses. And then the tavern, taverns were promptly opened. You have this, this image of this uh, you know, threatening, imposing person demanding to get his way. This would be one of those instances where perhaps he wasn't speaking as a prophet. <laughs> There's a line similar to that in one of these later pages. Oh, it's in the chapter of Canada for President. Maybe I'll talk about it when we get there. But I didn't have a ton of notes into this one in chapter 23 into hiding. There was this image that I just never, I had never imagined before. And, and I think this is a really, I think it's a, an interesting glimpse into the mind of Joseph Smith. And then also to the relationship that he had with Emma. It's on page 332. It's when he opens the bar at the hotel that they were living in. His wife is gone. Emma is gone to buy furniture for this hotel that they have opened. And while she's gone, Joseph Smith opens up a bar in the on the first floor. Emma returns from this couple months business trip, if you will, buying furniture. She comes back to see Porter Rockwell with his long, long hair tied behind his head with a ribbon for serving drinks at the bar in, in their house. Apparently, she got really upset with Joseph and threatened to move out with the kids. This is what she's quoted as saying. How does it look, she asked witheringly, for the spiritual head of a religious body to be keeping a hotel which has a room fitted out as a liquor selling establishment? She threatens to leave and then Joseph gives in because he doesn't want her to leave. For all of the stuff that he puts her through, all of this spiritual wifery, I don't know why he wouldn't just say, okay because he has all of these other wives. Like it's one of those moments in the story where I'm like maybe part of him did care about her and his family. 
maybe he is a little bit more complex than we give him credit for being. I hope that's true. My other thought was just that he had to keep face. He had to save face. and That's true. And if he's trying to deny polygamy, he can't lose his one, his one wife. Um, but I sure hope he loved her. I hope that that was more than it appears. Also, I thought it was interesting. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that the Nauvoo, it says the Nauvoo City Council had passed an ordinance giving Joseph the sole right to dispense liquor in his hotel. And who better to be trusted with such a monopoly than Joseph? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the issue that William Law and others had with him before polygamy was a real problem, is, is how much of a monopoly Joseph and the church had over the businesses in Nauvoo. So that's all I had for that one. I think it's leading up to some things that, that we'll talk about later in 25 and 26. The next chapter was chapter 24, The Wives of the Prophet. And this one, I couldn't put the book down. It was fascinating and heartbreaking all at the same time. Well, with this chapter, he's talk- she's talking about the wives. And I've read In Sacred Loneliness, and he goes into a lot more detail, Todd Compton. So if you guys want to learn more about the wives, read that one. She gives a very good overview. She lists off, lists off more people than Compton does. Do you know why that is? I, I think there's just more factual... There's more sources like he wanted to, to only make those claims if he had sources. And she's just saying here, here are the accusations. Yeah. 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 And she, she makes a note of that. She's like, these might not be, not all be correct. So she's giving herself that. There's 49 women on the list that she puts. And there are a lot of question marks on like the dates. Right. So I like that though. Cause she's admitting like, Hey, we don't know for sure, but some things we do know for sure. I did find it interesting on page 337, she's talking about Helen Mark Kimball, and she says that Helen Mark Kimball was 15 years old. Yeah, at the top of the page. So she says that she was 15 years old. Now, perhaps the church was citing Brody in their gospel topics essay. Who knows? Or maybe she does math the same way that the church does. <laughs> Just shy of her 15th birthday. Exactly. <laughs> One of the parts that got to me, and I've read it so many, and I've read it in other times as I've studied polygamy and trying to understand things, but it's the it's the line by Lucy Walker, and it's this: she's been approached by the prophet. She doesn't want to say yes right away. She wants to think about it, and it's this this like gut wrenching line that uh, she says. This she said aroused every drop of scotch in my veins. For a few moments, I stood fearless before him and looked in the eye. I felt at this moment that I was called to place myself upon the altar, a living sacrifice. Perhaps to brook the world in disgrace and incur the displeasure and contempt of my youthful companions. It's hard to read that. You know, when we have, you know, page 30, uh, 35 and 36, it's just a list of names and dates and ages. But then when you get the words of the actual people and their feelings as they're presented with the idea of polygamy, it just makes it so much more raw and real. And it expresses that this was not something that they did easily or that they would have chosen had they not been coerced into it. Yeah, that's very true. Like with Helen Marr, she in her journals that are not quoted here, she says she's a ewe lamb um, being sacrificed. And then even stories like Zina Huntington and her husband, Henry Jacobs, how he wrote her letters to try to get her back because she had left with the saints with Brigham and he was cut off from her. And he was very much in love with her still. Just, just these become people when you hear their actual words. I feel like the way 
that it was pre- presented, at least to me growing up. And, and maybe it's because I was a kid, you know, at the time where I was first learning about polygamy, but they were just names. They weren't presented like real people with ideas and feelings. And when you go and read how they actually felt about it, whether they accepted it later on or not, like when you, when you go and read their actual lived experience, it gives a very different picture of polygamy than what I was taught in the LDS church. Yeah. One of the interesting things, and it's one of the, one of the ideas that's debated between, um, apologists and, you know, members and post members and such is the idea of whether or not there was it, there was a sexual nature to these relationships. And, and I don't know that, that you can make the argument for every single one of them, but at least with the friend, Jonathan Holmes, one of Joseph Smith's friends, Holmes does make the claim and uh, Brody cites it on 338 that Joseph Smith did sleep with his sister in their home. Whether or not that's something that we could claim for every single person that he married polygamously, I think it's safe to say that he probably did sleep with at least some of them. You know, if we're going to be trying to try and be as impartial impartial as we can, I don't think we could make a blanket statement that he didn't sleep with any of them. And I don't think we can make a state, statement that he slept with all of them with any certainty. But I think we could say safely that he slept with a number of them. All right, so Dan Vogel, I've, I've researched or I've been listening to a lot of his own podcasts on YouTube. And he he puts forth all the evidence, I think, for at least nine of these women. And I think these are the ones that are, I think he's only exploring the ones that are, are married to men, but I can't, mar- already married, but I can't remember. But he does at least explore nine and give, give, uh, give sources like that where other people have seen them together or the wives have said it themselves. So at least some, but yeah, of course we don't have evidence for all of them. Of course. Yeah. And that's one of the tricky things. It's not something you normally have evidence for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The the tough thing about this is that they were trying to keep it secret. And so any evidence was, was absconded away or was hidden away. Right. There's a line that says, according to Heber Kimball, Emma now threatened to leave her husband altogether which I thought was very interesting. I don't think of her as leaving because she's in the, she's always depicted as like this super devoted wife, but they really struggled at times. Yeah, they really did. A lot of elements of the early church you could put in a gray area and you could say, you know, it could go one way or the other. For me, polygamy is one of the only things that really can't be looked at in a positive light. I don't know that you could spin this in a positive way. And one of the things, aside from, from the abuse and the coercion, one of the things that really stands out to me is highlighted on page 339. It's relating the story of Emily and Eliza Partridge. It's the, it's the story that so many people have heard about, but it's this, these two girls that Joseph Smith marries polygamously in secret. Then after he tells Emma, he gets Emma to accept the whole thing, which is an ordeal on its own with lots of problems. But Emma chooses these two girls and he goes and he remarries them for Emma's sake. For me, it shows the, it shows the character of Joseph Smith, at least in regards to the practice of polygamy that he cannot be honest. He cannot be trusted on this subject because he's going to this, you know, ideally your spouse would be the person that you trust and communicate with the most. And he's going to her and he's creating this, this sham wedding for, with these two girls that had already happened. There's so much around polygamy that casts Joseph in a, in a bad light, but this shows him to be a liar. 
for whatever someone would believe about him in other aspects of his life, right here is, is a spot where you could point to and say, he lied to Emma and made these fake marriages that had already happened. Yeah, there's no way around that. That, that is a lie by Joseph. Also, if, even if you say that this, the polygamy is sanctioned by God, it's not healthy. Like you see that in the biblical stories. You see that here. It's just not healthy for these women. It's not healthy for the children. It's not healthy for any kind of bonding relationship between the parents or the couple. Like it's just not healthy at all. This was a hard chapter to get through. Brody is wrapping up this chapter. She's talking about the fact that there were no known children sired by Joseph Smith outside of his marriage to Emma. Brody <laughs> Brody makes this argument that at its core might sound familiar to people arguing for uh, the lack of evidence for the Book of Mormon. So she says, it may be that evidence of other children born to Joseph lies buried among the manuscripts in the church library in Salt Lake, which the Mormon authorities originally were unwilling to publish out of deference to the women themselves, who would naturally resent having their intimate secrets exposed to Gentile mockery. And now that polygamy among the majority of the Mormon of the Mormons is dead, the leaders are not anxious to reemphasize the fact that their prophet practiced it. Certainly, they are eager to forget the magnificent immoderation with which he fulfilled the new marriage covenant. For once Joseph had succeeded to his own satisfaction in revolutionizing the Puritan concept of sin, there was no stopping him. What Brody's saying there is that perhaps evidence exists, but we just haven't found it yet. You know, it's locked up in the church library. This is an interesting argument because it's what those that believe in the Book of Mormon and, and argue for the fact that since we haven't found evidence of it, you know, maybe it is still out there. We just haven't found it. <laughs> if, some, if someone's making that argument and using it to try and defend the historicity of the Book of Mormon, you could easily make a counter argument with the same logic about so many other things. Right. As an active member in my scriptures, I wrote down, truth is the daughter of time, as in, over time, we will figure out the horses were actually here and that steel is actually here and that these civilizations were still here in, in, for the Book of Mormon. But yeah, you could say the same thing about polygamy. <laughs> it's tough because it's something that, you know, we just might never know the answer. Right. Well, and I also think it's interesting. She's, she's saying they could be, there could be evidence that's hidden away. And she is a victim of this evidence hiding because even her, she didn't have access to the first two first vision accounts, at least, if not more documents. So I'm surprised she was able to write this as well as she did. And as researched as she did without having access to these things. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how much information she got. Right. And she tries to make it clear when she's um, making an inference or guessing based on the evidence that she does have. It's an amazing read and it's an excellent biography. The next chapter is chapter 25. It's Candidate for the President. And this, this harkens back to a couple chapters ago when we talked about this habeas corpus that they had set up where in Nauvoo, they can review any sort of extradition or warrants or anything legal coming into their town, and they get to decide whether or not to take it seriously. And this takes that to the next level. This is the, the Whigs and the Democrats, right? And he's trying to sway their vote. Yeah, this is when they're trying to sway the vote. Joseph Smith's brother, Hiram, was actually trying to run a political campaign. Well, so what I thought was interesting 
with that aspect, so Joseph stands up in front of the crowd because they're going to vote for whoever Joseph tells them to vote for, all the Mormons. Um, and so people are trying to convince Joseph and get on his good side so that, that he'll have his people vote for them. But Joseph says, um, he's like, I wish you guys would vote for Walker, I think, of the Whigs. And he says, but Hiram tells me this morning that he has a testimony to the effect to vote for Hogue. Um, and he says, I never knew Hiram to say he ever had a revelation and it failed. And so everyone voted for Hiram's person, which I just thought was really interesting. But also on the page before that. Which page is that? On 352, uh, we were talking about how, oh, I can't remember how we worded it last time. Joseph's vengeance kind of thing. His Alcorin and the sword. Yeah. So he says, um, bear until you strike or bear until they strike you on one cheek and offer the other. And then they will be sure to strike that. Whereas with Jesus, he says, you know, just keep letting them strike you, you know, 70 times seven. But Joseph says, then defend yourselves and God will bear you off. You shall stand forth clear before his tribunal. If mobs come upon you and more here, down your gardens with them. <laughs> That's the opposite of what Christ was teaching. Yeah. <laughs> On 355. Okay, so he says everyone has to appeal to the governor of Nauvoo. And that's Joseph. And that you can't. Another ordinance made, in a, uh, made it a criminal offense for any officer to issue a warrant in Nauvoo without first having it signed and approved by the mayor, which is Joseph. Which is twisted. He also made it possible that only gold and silver were the only legal tender in Nauvoo to keep the debtors or creditors from taking any land. <laughs> yeah. And he's, so he's quoted as in this section, he says, we stand in the same relation to the state. And this is Joseph Smith talking from history of the church, volume five, page 289. We stand in the same relation to the state as the state does to the union. Shall we be such fools as to be governed by Illinois laws, which are unconstitutional? So they're trying to set themselves apart as this as this independent entity within the state of illinois this goes right to you know in the the very next page they talk about the organization of the council of 50 50 different people being ordained as princes in the kingdom of god and joseph smith setting himself as king of the kingdom of god i don't think i'd ever heard it that way the council of 50 princes like i just hadn't heard that part of it Brody mentioned on the next page, if I'm not mistaken, that, uh, and this is page 357, that the details regarding these uh, meetings of the Council of 50 are very scant. The only detailed account of these activities was written by George Miller. And these are the letters to the Northern Islander in 1855. So it is quite a bit removed. It's, you know, 10 years, 11 years after these events. But that is the only source that we have for what happened in those meetings. Another thing that I thought was interesting on page 356, Joseph was asking that Nauvoo be made a completely independent federal territory with the Nauvoo Legion, with the Nauvoo Legion incorporated into the United States Army. And, the, and as mayor of Nauvoo, he could call upon the United States troops when necessary. I thought that was very, very funny, very presumptuous. It's so grandiose, you know, it's yeah, yeah. like it's one of those moments were, you know, I'm reading these stories about Joseph Smith and I'm just like the audacity to go to the government and say, we are independent now, but also I, I demand authority over the military. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Joseph that Brody is painting is very different that than was painted in how I was raised with. He's, he's presumptuous. He, he brags, he's very cocky. He likes to throw threats. 
Yeah, it doesn't line up well with the very muted and calm and charismatic version that we're presented because it's all right there in these letters. I mean, these are actual quotes from Joseph Smith written down um, by con- you know, contemporary people and written in newspapers and such. Another thing that Brody does in this chapter is that she talks about how they are exploring this idea of having to leave the state. And they, they think about maybe moving to Oregon, to Texas. Joseph really liked the idea of Texas. And he liked the idea of some of the ruins down there and how that could help bolster the testimony of the Book of Mormon. And I just never thought about that before. I thought that they had, I guess I thought that they didn't have any plans. And then Brigham said, let's go, let's go out west. I didn't think that, I didn't realize that they were planning on leaving already. I don't remember if it's, it was this chapter or the next chapter, but the governor of Illinois, I think it's, I think that's in chapter, uh, the, the last chapter, but the governor of Illinois wanted to just put enough pressure on the Mormons to get them to leave. He didn't actually want to kill anybody. He didn't want anything negative. He wanted to pattern what happened in Missouri, in Illinois, where instead of any big war or civil war that they were worried about, that the Mormons would just move on to the next place. Right. So this was also when Joseph Smith, he had petitioned for help from a different a number of different people that were running for president at the time and didn't get favorable responses. And so then he decided to run himself. And it was interesting. So Brody painted this as more missionary work than actual, like a concerted effort to become the president. Um, he used it as an opportunity to maybe garner support for their persecution. And it was more a missionary effort than it was actual, a political move. Yeah. She says, it seems by this movement that Joe Smith does not expect to be elected president but he still wants to have a finger in the pie and see whether something cannot be made out of it. I just thought that was a fun image. (laughs) I love the way she writes. She's amazing. Yeah. That was fascinating. And it reminded me a lot of the way the church operates today. They'll have a focus on something such as light, uh, light the world, where they'll do a big push and they'll talk about how much service or, you know, other humanitarian efforts that they're putting out into the world, where those are actually run by the PR department and not the humanitarian or not like the missionary departments in the church. They're, they are PR moves to get a better, a better favorable view of the LDS church. Oh boy. That comes from my chats with Brian Harris a couple months ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. I listened to that. That was very fascinating. I also like that Brody is admitting a lot of people say that Joseph was not racist because he wanted, he didn't want slavery, but she says here, she says that as he was running for president, he voted for freeing the slaves, but she admits that it was a complete reversal of his earlier stand. So like he, and we have those quotes too, where he was all for it. If you believe in the Bible, you kind of have to believe in slavery. And then he changes his mind because he will get more votes. He he'll be seen better if he goes against slavery. I just think that's really interesting. It is interesting. And and I think for me, if we're going to take everything aside and, you know, and just ignore basically the person that he was and look solely at the theology within the LDS church, he wasn't afraid to change his mind. And I think that that's really cool. If you can, if he can make a statement and say, Hey, you know, the way when he writes the book of Mormon originally, and it's very Trinitarian. And then a couple of years later, he adjusts the theology and says, no, actually, we're going to go this different route. I think it's really fascinating that within his own life, he was able to make those sort of changes. And I just wish that the, the modern church could emulate that element of Joseph Smith and the way he practiced or, or started the LDS church where 
when they run into something that might be troubling or doesn't line up perfectly with the way the world is, where they're okay to make a change theologically. It's one of the things that I, that I really appreciate about the way he approached doctrine. I love that. Even as you were saying that, I was like trying to think about all the things that he changed in his lifetime from one thing to the other, which sometimes even the total opposite. So Joseph was not afraid to change his mind. And yeah, like if the brethren now could emulate that, it could be a better church or a more welcoming church, at least. It's so bizarre to read about this side of Joseph Smith and this side of, of early church history and how politicized it was. Like, it's just, just not, um, not aspects that I was familiar with prior to, to digging into church history. Wait, so I wanted to read this list. Um, to me, these chapters reminded me of the rise of Julius Caesar and his demise. Oh, yeah. And this on page 366, she goes through this whole list of Joseph's achievements and what he is in this moment. She says he was not only candidate for president, but also mayor of Nauvoo, judge of the municipal court, merchant of the leading store, hotel keeper, official temple architect, real estate agent, contractor, recorder of deeds, steamboat owner, trustee and trust for all the finances of his church, lieutenant general of the Nauvoo Legion, spiritual advisor, and the Lord's communicant to the true church, king of the new kingdom of God, and husband of almost 50 wives. And that is quite. A feat. <laughs> it is for a small farm boy from upstate New York. Born of the lowest ranks of poverty without book learning and the homeliest of all human names, made himself at the age of 39 a power upon earth. Like, yeah, for better or worse, he did make something of himself. And it's interesting that you reference Julius Caesar because he, he is quoted as mentioning Julius Caesar, I think, right in Carthage. Was that in Carthage? I don't remember. It just stuck out to me because he he was talking about a Brutus to my Julius Caesar, and I think that was in Carthage that he said that. Yes. Oh, it's very next page, 367. So this is in um, the chapter Prelude to Destruction, and maybe this is a good segue into it. Joseph Swartz's peril, um, as he understood perfectly, was ripening within his own kingdom. This is a quote from him from... The History of the Church, Volume 6, page 152, an address address on December 29th. My life is more in danger from some little doughhead of a fool in this city than from all my numerous and inveterate enemies abroad. He declared, I am exposed to far greater danger from traitors among ourselves than from enemies without. I can live as Caesar might might have lived, were it not for a right hand Brutus. We have a Judas in our midst. Yeah, so the so chapter twenty six is prelude to destruction, and this one was one of the most fascinating ones for me. Um, I had dug into polygamy before. I'd, I'd I'd done a lot of research in a lot of the other themes of this of the book that that Brody covers, but this one had a lot of things that I did not know, specifically with some of the disagreements that William Law had prior to polygamy. And then some of the charges that they put they, they put up against Joseph Smith that all led up to Carthage Jail. Page 367, William Law is noticing a lot of different things about the way Joseph is running the town. And he has problems with the fact that anyone that moves in, they have to go through Joseph to buy new land. They have to use Joseph's store. They have to, like everything is owned and operated by the church. He cre- he has created a monopoly in this city and it's religiously motivated. So the people that are coming in, they're 
they believe that he's the prophet and then they don't speak out against it or they don't, you know, they're going to just follow whatever he recommends. And he has his hand in seemingly every single pie in the city. <laughs> That's what William Law was upset about. Um, in 368, it kind of lists some of his resentments. And this is on, on the page 368. Law hid his resentment over the prophet's monopoly of the management of real estate in and about the city, though he thought it unseemly in a man of God. He'd been particularly shocked when Joseph, Joseph threatened to excommunicate any wealthy convert who came to Nauvoo and purchased land without his counsel. Finally, he came to mistrust Joseph's business judgment and refused to invest money in the publication of the revised version of the Bible, placing his funds instead in a steam mill and hemp farm. Prior to reading this, I didn't know that there were other complaints that William Law and these three other prominent men that we'll mention in a minute here that they had against Joseph Smith before polygamy was the the catalyst for the end. Yeah, one thing also with William Law is that she says that the prophet tried to approach Law's own wife, Jane. And then she quotes five different individuals who back this story up. So like, I thought that was really interesting too. And then there's stories of Emma with liking William and wanting him as a plural husband. I don't think Brody goes into that very much, but definitely uh, Jane Law, He she talks about. And I thought that was really interesting. One of the things too, so they, they talk about, um, and this is, the source for this is the Nauvoo Expositor. They talk about William Law's response to being propositioned with polygamy. And he viewed Joseph Smith as a fallen prophet. He believed in everything and he actually stayed a member. Like he didn't get excommunicated right away. He gets upset. They have their disagreement, but he's still, you know, participating Mormon at the time after this disagreement. And he viewed Joseph as a fallen prophet and he had hoped that he would return, repent and return to the light, if you will. I just thought that was a fascinating response and it shows to the, the amount of faith that William Law had in the other aspects of Mormonism. For a time, I think that his faith is what kept him in the church until some other events happened that made it impossible to continue. Brody also talks about this, the book of the law of the Lord. And apparently it was a book that was kept um, in the care of Hiram Smith and the names of his plural wives, if I'm not mistaken, were in there. I just hadn't heard that before. The, the part that I hadn't heard about was, was Dr. Robert Foster, who he had a lot of the same concerns about the way Joseph Smith was running the city as William Law did. He comes home after a business trip to find Joseph Smith with his wife at home when he's not there. And he gets upset at this. He basically, he threatens to kill his wife. He says, it's going to be you or me. He gives her a gun because she wouldn't tell him what Joseph Smith was talking about. And he threatens to kill her and he says, you're going to need a gun to defend yourself. And then she faints. And when she comes to, she tells him all about this proposition of polygamy. So Joseph Smith tries to sue him for defamation and Foster goes to law and the two of them get some 40 plus witnesses and they're ready to go to trial. They're ready to, to defend these claims that are made that are being spoken as of as defamation, but they're, they're confident that they can prove with these 40 plus witnesses. And the way that Joseph handled this is he excommunicated Foster and Law and uh, William Law's wife, Jane Law. And also, 
Was that William's brother? I don't remember. Probably. Because there was one other guy uh, excommunicated, and I think I think it was. Because yeah, she lists Wilson, but I don't. I can't remember who Wilson is. Yeah, so probably his brother. And this this was the schism that, in my mind, like started the downfall. So now William, he's a believing member of the church, but now he's been excommunicated because of what he saw, what he knew. I think there were some really fascinating parallels to the way the church has handled dissenters today, excommunicating them and instead of actually addressing the issues. Mm -hmm. The patterns of the way the church handles problems have been there from the beginning, apparently. What they what they do in response is they they do three different indictments on Joseph Smith, slander, adultery, false swearing, and three different people go and they try and take him to court on these different items. And I just think it's fascinating because just a couple chapters prior where he's definitely able to maneuver around the law and capable of defending himself and staying out of trouble. But just as he said with this reference to Caesar and Brutus, these were people that were part of the community and they didn't stay. So William Law gets excommunicated and he doesn't leave. He stays there. These are his neighbors. These are the, the people that he's friends with. And then he starts the Nauvoo Expositor. And just as Joseph had said, his downfall came from within, or at least the beginning of this downfall came from within. Uh, Brody quotes his public sermon in May 26th. And it's just his whole, he just reminds me of what Caesar would, would be like, just being drunk with power. He says, the Lord has constituted me um, so curiously that I glory in persecution. And he goes on to saying about talking about his persecution. He says, I shall always beat them. When facts are proved, truth and innocence will prevail at last. Come on, you persecutors, you false swearers, all hell boil over. And this is where he says, I have more to boast than any other man had. And then he talks about how he's, he says, um, she marked it out of here, but this is when he says that um, since the days of Adam, like I've been able to keep a church together. He says, how do I love to hear the wolves howl? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that that Brody said about the expositor was that contrasting what John C. Bennett did and wrote to what William Law wrote, because they both had similar responses. They both decided to go to the press and write about their interactions with Joseph Smith. Where, where John C. Bennett was salacious and invented all sorts of things, William Law erred on the side of subtlety and saying less, you know, less is more. He had so many details, but he only said the most pertinent, most important things. It gave more credence to what he was saying because he was an upstanding citizen. He wasn't making these outrageous claims. Brody points out that had he just let it go, had he just let the Nauvoo Expositor just be printed, had it be circulated, the members probably would have been fine. His church probably would have gone on. He would have lived. They would have moved out to Texas or Colorado or wherever, which I thought was really interesting. The members today know about polygamy and they still are fine. I think she says that in the epilogue because she talks about a lot of these what ifs. But yeah, it's one of those moments where the response to this criticism is what led to his death more than the criticism itself. Because he had been accused of polygamy countless times prior to this. But his response to it was what was different. It was coming from his own town. They called together a city council and ordered a trial. But instead of having a judge or having lawyers, witnesses, defense, or anything like that, the counselors just stood up 
and they accused law and the the expositor of sedition and all sorts of things. Instead of going through any sort of due process, they just went right ahead and burned it down. Right. Their response was was what incited the government of Illinois to react the way that they did. But again, as you know, as I said earlier, the governor of Illinois did not want it to go this way. So one thing I think is interesting is that Fanny Alger happens in 1833, and this is all happening in 1843. So he's had 10 years of people accusing him of living polygamy. This isn't new, but maybe just the fact that these are people in his close circle that are stabbing him in the back, maybe that's why he chose to react so harshly. He also had a lot more political power or local power um, over the town. That's true. And the the newspaper was based in Nauvoo and he's the mayor and he's in charge. You know, everybody's in his pocket, basically. It's a huge conflict of interest. Perhaps in these other, you know, these prior things, the only response that that he could do was just publicly deny it. At this point, they have been making laws where they're where they're basically putting themselves above the law of the land. This, this just goes right along with that, where they're saying, you know, this is our this is our city. We are in charge here. We will not have that newspaper. And instead of following any sort of procedure, they just accuse it and then go and burn it down. He narrowly escaped imprisonment and all sorts of other things all throughout his life. And the moment we, where he's in the most power, like he has more power than he's ever had in his entire life. And now he can't get out of it. He can't get away from something he, that he did. I think that's all I had on that chapter. So the, the, the last chapter is chapter 27 and is Carthage. The governor of Illinois is looking for him. Joseph Smith goes into hiding. And during these events, um, she cites the blessing that Joseph gave to his son. Um, and that's on 381, where he names his son as his successor. His, his son, Joseph, is like 12 at the time, and Joseph ordains him to be the successor. But this was a little-known event. There wasn't a ton of you know, pomp and circumstance around it. And so this was something that the Brighamite branch just kind of buried under the rug. I think it's interesting that she quotes six sources saying that Joseph Smith III was indeed called as the next prophet. One of Radio Free Mormon's most popular episodes is on this subject. It's the... Uh, he calls it the apostolic coup d'etat and talks about how Brigham Young asserted dominance and took over the institution. And so, so Brody kind of briefly mentions that, but she um, doesn't go into to a ton of detail. Again, this isn't, this isn't a biography of Brigham Young. This is of Joseph Smith. And so it's, it's almost just like a footnote that she throws this in there. Mm-hmm. One of the other things she talks about is that Hiram apparently wanted to turn themselves in, to wanted Joseph and Hiram to go go to the law and go through due process. He was confident that they would be forgiven as they had been countless times prior. In the, the amount of times this guy went to jail and then just got out are, are amazing. Like, it's incredible how many times this, this happened throughout his life. In 392, it says that he, Joseph scribed an order to Jonathan Dunham to bring the Legion and to break him out of jail to save him at all costs. And so this message gets to him and, and I don't know where she's getting this source exactly. Oh, Alan J. Stout tells a story. He says that Jonathan Dunham just put it in his pocket and didn't do anything about it. So they, he just left Joseph where he was. <laughs> I never heard that story before. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hadn't heard that one before either. One of the things that stood out to me is the story and the prophecy that gets told about Willard Richards, you know, the bullets will fly and you won't be harmed at all. When you look at actually what happens, he does get hit once. I mean, it's not a fatal wound, but Brody talks about him actually getting hit in the neck and the ear. Oh, yeah. Where he's grazed. Yeah. And so, I mean, not that it's not miraculous that he didn't get killed or injured, but the, the way the story was told to me was that, you know, bullets will fly all around you, but you will be protected by God. You know, and other people talking about how the prophet and the others in the room weren't wearing their garments, but Willard Richard was, and that's why he was protected when they weren't. Like I've told all sorts of stories and you know folklore about this event, but when in actuality he actually did get hit, it just wasn't as fatal and wasn't as severe as some of the other people that were shot. And how John Taylor got got hit a number of times, like it. It sounded like he had to go through like a recovery process because he was hit multiple times. And then one shot that would have been fatal was stopped by his watch. So actually, the church today says that that actually isn't true. He was not shot. Oh, really? The bullet did not hit his watch. If you've seen his watch face, a bullet would have destroyed it. It looks like it just, they say now that it just fell and hit the windowsill and just busted it. So they they backed away from that and they removed that part of the museum which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> when more evidence around these events comes out, they have to retell the story in a way that's both faith promoting, but then matches with reality. And oftentimes that means they have to walk back these prophecies. Right. Well, and Hiram Smith also had a watch, but his, even though it went through his back and into his front pocket, I think that's how it works. That that watch was pulverized. So it doesn't make any sense for a, for a bullet to hit John Taylor's directly. One of the other things that I that I thought was fascinating about this is that his the, the actual death of Joseph Smith was far more brutal than I was ever led to believe. He gets shot a couple of times. It's described not as him like falling out the window, but he like he grabs onto the windowsill and he's hanging there for a little bit and then he falls to the ground. And then the men led by William Daniels, he was like the leader of the militia if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. He orders the guys to go and lean him up against the wall, and then they all shoot him. After they've shot him, another guy goes, pulls out a knife, and he's getting ready to behead the prophet, and then they stop him from it. And it's this whole scene is so much more gruesome than I was ever led to believe. Yeah, like it's like even reading it from her perspective, like it's much slower. It's almost like it's in slow motion because he's calling out the window, the Masonic, um, is there no help for the widow's son? A bullet hits him in the from the door behind him and he falls slowly out of the window and then he just hangs there like you said and then everything just sort of slowly happens he falls on his right shoulder they lean him up he says oh lord my god and then they shoot him like it's just yeah it's amazing to me how i mean you could say lucky or if you're a believer you could say protected but time and time again throughout his life he avoids things with uncanny ability it's kind of amazing all of the things that happened to this person throughout his life that he was able to avoid. I like with this, she says, what was already a legend, it converted into an epic at the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. I thought that was a really good way to say that. In the epilogue, she quotes Emma as saying, and this is on 396, she flung himself or herself over Joseph. She's weeping and she says, oh, Joseph, Joseph, they have killed you at last. I mean, for better or worse, Throughout their entire marriage, people have been trying to 
tar and feather and hurt him for as long as they've been together. It's painful. It may, that line makes me feel so much more for Emma than it does for Joseph. One of the things that I thought a lot as I was reading this is just how, how much Emma went through in all of this. Right. Yeah. Even earlier in the chapters, um, Von Brody quotes Lucy Mack saying that she's never known a woman to go, to go through as much stuff as Emma did and still come out. Okay. I think she just went through. And even after this, um, marrying Vitamin and raising his child with another woman and having all these things happen. She just had a really rough life. One of the things, so Brody does also talk about the fact that because he was murdered, you know, this whole idea of sealing his testimony with his blood, as the church would say, but the the fact that he was killed, it changed the morality around his life, where suddenly he has this moral high ground of persecution because he was actually killed for the things that he believed in. Without that, without that element, one of the things that she talks about is, you know, the church might not have been able to grow as much as it did because of that. It would be really interesting to see, to have seen what that would... As you had said, like in this epilogue as well, she's kind of postulating and she says, you know, they could have moved to Oregon or they could have moved to Texas because they they had plans. Joseph Smith had sent scouts out to these different places. They'd sent letters to to the governor of Texas, if I'm not mistaken, you know, talking about agreements, you know, moving to New Mexico, maybe there were plans in the works for them to leave. They just hadn't come to fruition yet. Contrasting him being able to get out of things and not being able to get out of things. I think it's fascinating because the minute he has, let's say, absolute power over both the law and the theology, that's when his downfall happens. And it reminds me of DNC 121.39. I don't have it right here. I can grab my scriptures. Sorry. (laughs) No, I got it. I got it. It just was, <laughs> the link didn't work on my on my notes. Oh, okay. One twenty one thirty nine. It says we have learned by sad experience that is the, that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Ooh. <laughs> In my mind, for better or worse, you know, if if you think he saw Jesus at the beginning, or you know, whatever his motives were. It wasn't until he started having power and authority over people that some of the more problematic elements of his story happened. And that's ultimately what led to his death, at least from my reading and my understanding of his history. It's this admonition that whether he wrote it or whether it was inspired by God, it's this admonition that's put under his pen in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy of his own life. That was a very interesting connection. That was really neat to see. Did you have any final thoughts or like last remarks on the whole book? Sorry to put you on the spot for that. <laughs> oh yeah. I was just looking, just reading through my notes in the last few pages. And this book, she tells story. And maybe that's why these last seven chapters were so fascinating to me. Cause I don't often in the church, we don't often study these parts of his life. Um, his running for president, his changing his campaign, his uh, being a mayor of Nauvoo. I, I hadn't heard a lot of these stories. So this was fascinating to me, but the overall book, as far as I know, and having done a fair amount of research, she's getting most of this stuff correct. And she admits when she's wrong, she admits where it might not be totally factual. This book, it's just so, I, I think important. I think most of the members should read this. If I just think everyone should read this book. Whether someone is going to come away from this knowledge with faith or having lost their faith, I think it's important for 
a person to come to the table with accurate information of historical events, whether they still want to, you know, talk about the mythologized elements and use those as like spiritually uplifting or a, a guide to, to lead their lives and make good choices. I think that's independent of facts. And I think it's important for believers and non-believers to be able to know what really happened and then make informed decisions based on that information. Well, so the people that I mostly want to reach are active members of the church. My family, most of us, them are active. And so what I would say to them is just don't like there are parts of the church history of Joseph Smith history that are sort of cringy. Well, that's what I would say. But I think we all have a past. But like, I, I don't want people to shy away from what they will learn from this book. That's my biggest thing is don't be afraid to learn more about Joseph. Yeah, I've had a lot of people on TikTok say, tell me that this book is total nonsense. It's just false. And they'll cite, they'll cite Hugh Nibley, his little pamphlet. Hugh Nibley, his pamphlet. Um, as refuting all of her claims. But the, nobody quotes Hugh Nibley anymore. None of the, even the apologists. But like she, a lot of the historians now will say that this book is accurate. And it is well written. It's Gregory Prince says it's the most important history written by Joseph Smith or about Joseph Smith. So I don't think people should dismiss it. Like I completely agree. Every person and the church included, Joseph Smith included, we have this dichotomy of like good and bad impulses. And sometimes we do good things, sometimes we do bad things. Joseph Smith is not separate from that. He's a complicated character. He did some really good things and he did some really bad things. The same with the church. There's not a single entity in the, on this planet that doesn't have this sort of dual nature of good and bad, if you will. And reading through his history doesn't mean you can't have faith in him, you know, to an extent. Um, I think the limitation would be to, to look at certain events differently than, than uh, the church typically teaches, but it doesn't have to lead to disbelief. Yeah, I think that's super important. Knowing these things won't cause a person to just not believe. You'll just know more about this person who was the, the prophet of the church at the time. One last thing that I'll add is I, I have a really close friend that I had an awesome chat with the other day where I was nervous to tell him that I do this podcast because I've still been, I've been kind of uh, silent about it in my own personal life, my personal circles. We were sitting in the car together. We were driving out to go get some food and I leaned over and I'm like, dude, I've got something I want to tell you. I really hope it doesn't affect our relationship. And I brought it up and he's like, oh, I already know. One of my buddies listens. And I was like, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> so you've got a friend that's been listening this whole time and you've been talking to him about my podcast and you haven't told me about this? <laughs> we actually had a really good chat. He's a very faithful guy. I agree. I think the informed consent part, like you can still 100% believe that won't bother me. It shouldn't bother you, but just if you know about Joseph, if you know about the church history, that's what's important to just. For all the problems in church history and, you know, any complaints that you have about it, the church does create excellent communities. And I, I think there are salvageable elements. You know, if I'm going to theory craft my perfect version of Mormonism, there's a lot that I would keep in. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Julia. This has been a blast. It's always a pleasure to bring you on. I love your insight. And I love this. This is I'm like sad it's over. Well, it doesn't have to be. We can think of something new to, to discuss down the road. So Well, that'd be really fun. Good. Um, well, thank you so much again for coming on. We'll think of something. Maybe we'll throw out something to the listeners for them to have some input on what we might discuss next. 
That'd be great. Yeah. And as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. This concluded the four-part book review of No Man Knows My History, along with Julia from Analyzing Mormonism. As always, be sure to go and find her podcast, listen and subscribe to the work that she's doing over there on Analyzing Mormonism. Julia does a great job of diving deep into the source material and giving an excellent depiction of what was actually written by these people and or said by these people during the, the different historical events that she covers. Excellent content that she puts out there. You can find her on TikTok, YouTube, and, and wherever you stream your podcasts. And don't worry, I plan to bring her back on soon so that we can discuss another book. The plan right now is to um, cover some of our favorite parts of the appendices uh, from No Man Knows My History. And then after that, we'll do a survey, maybe to some of the listeners, to help us decide what book to cover next. As always, wherever you find yourself out there, getting ready for a hot date, I hope you have an excellent day.